Amen. Good morning, Cedar Creek. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. If you weren't here for Danny's welcome and you don't know who I am, uh, my name is Rick. I'm the adult ministry director here at the Banks Mill campus, which means primarily our help with our home groups and our home group leaders. Shameless plug, we'd love to get you connected with one. If you're not, fill out that card on the bottom of your program and we will help you take that next step. I'll also help with our guest services team, who are all the wonderful people that you see around in blue shirts, doing coffee and donuts and passing out programs and doing everything just to make this place welcoming and warm. I'll be full disclosure on that. We have two ladies uh, who really run the guest services team and I've been married for nearly 10 years. So what I've learned is I just get them what they need and then mostly just stay out of their way. Uh, So that's my strategy there, but that's what I do. But this morning I am excited to be here. If you have your Bible, you can grab it, open it, go to Philippians chapter one. We'll read uh, just one verse out of there, two verses out of there really today uh, here in just a little bit. But if you wanna get over there in your Bible or iPhone or iPad or however you're tracking along with us this morning, that's where we will come from. And if you don't know how we normally work here, usually how we teach here at Cedar Creek is uh, we teach through what we call series, which is maybe a, a, a handful of messages, four, five, six, eight, 10, 12 weeks, somewhere in there that are a common topic or maybe a passage of scripture or a book of the Bible or something like that, that we just spend some time jumping into and exploring together. And we'll be in that for a season. Then we transition for the next one. And we're kind of in a transitional time. And so what last week and this week has been is what we call standalone messages, which means it's not really part of a broader series and it's not really going to encapsulate anything else and so there's not really a whole lot of work you're gonna have to do to make sure you're here next week or or, or anything like that. But I do wanna encourage you this morning, what we're gonna do is kind of continue a thought that started last week. Uh, And if you weren't here last week, Jordan Nates, who is our center point director here, works with our middle school and high school students, uh, preached a message to our graduates that really wasn't just to our graduates. It was really challenging for all of us and called each of us to take next steps. And we're really gonna kind of continue out of that, even though we're not technically in a series, this morning's thought is going to kind of continue from the thought that Jordan started. And he asked some questions. It was just titled, Questions That Need Answers. And he really did an effective job of kind of pressing some questions in front of us that all of us at some level have to answer. Believer, not a believer, wherever you fall on that spectrum, all of us have to wrestle with and answer the questions that Jordan laid out for us last week, mainly what we think about Jesus and what we believe about God. And so if you didn't get to listen to that, really cool. Uh, You can go online or get the Cedar Creek Church app uh, and pull that up and watch that from last week. And I think it will help maybe a little bit as we get going this morning. But before we do that too, I wanna also um, recognize or maybe deal with something that maybe you believe, maybe you don't. Uh, I'm just gonna clear it up. I'm gonna get it out there right here up front. Just because they give me a microphone and let me stand up here and talk for the next 30-ish minutes um, does not mean I know everything. In fact, it doesn't mean that I even know everything about the Bible, that I can somehow answer every question that you have or help you figure out every life problem that you have. I would love, listen, I would love nothing more than to be able to shepherd and help care and walk alongside you or get you connected to a group that can do that. But no matter who we connect you to or what we do, none of us knows everything. And so this morning's message is coming from that spot. And it really started as I was beginning to think through it and some of the stuff that's happened in my life, I thought back to just, just over a year ago or just under a year ago, I can't really remember where it was. Um, they asked me to stand up here and teach a message on parenting, okay? I'm 32 years old. 
I have a three-year-old who will be four in two weeks, and I have a little baby boy uh, who is two months old and is pushing 17 pounds. Uh, he is just a big, chunky ball of boy goodness, okay? His forearms are fat. I don't even know how you can have fat forearms, but he does. Uh, and so my parenting expertise is, this, is at this level. Every day at the Lee house that the same number of people are alive when we go to bed as when we woke up was a successful parenting day for us. That's the level of expertise that we have. And so I share that because I know it can be easy to believe that, hey, I need to, I need to listen and, and I'm wrestling with this. And I'll demonstrate it even further about a month ago, and if you've had multiple kids, um, you know that this is kind of a thing that frequently happens with kids. Our daughter, who's been potty trained and who is unbelievable, uh, her and I get to spend a lot of time together right now because mom is, is dealing with the little thick man. Uh, and so she's doing that, and we get to spend a lot of time together. And about a month ago, um, Piper came out of the, her room, which is down the hall, and I was just hanging out in the den from her nap. And she got there, and I could tell she kind of had like a sad look on her face. And she said, Daddy. And I said, Yes, Piper. And she said, I had an accident. And I said, oh, no. I said, it's okay, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Accidents happen. You know, I'm trying to be a good parent. And I make my way through our living room to the hallway where she's standing. And my senses begin to tell me something's different about this accident. And primarily the senses that I'm using to tell me that is the sense of smell. Because as I approach Piper, it's like a possum in July, like that three to four day old period where it's really started to get good, roadkill smell. I'm like, what has happened? And she's like, I had an accident. I pooped. I couldn't make it to the potty. I'm like, okay. I'm like, let's go. Let's just go. I'm like, let's go back to your room and you can show me what happened. I'm not picking her up because I don't want that accident to be part of me. And so we walk back down there and I'm, I get back to the room and it, it's, I'm telling you guys, it's, she's going to kill me when she gets older and goes back and watches this message. It's awful, right? And that kind of stuff doesn't bother me. I'm like, oh. So I'm trying to clean it up and pack up the sheets and the blankets and everything. And I'm going to get it all in the laundry. And Misty's sleeping uh, with Gunner over in the other room. So I'm trying to keep her down. And finally, I'm like, Piper, are you okay? Like, are, 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 do you feel okay? She's like, dang, my stomach hurts. I'm like, I'll say that's right. It does. <laughs> Uh, and, I'm like, and so I'm just kind of thinking, I'm like, Piper, I can't think of anything. You know, we didn't make our normal family run to Taco Bell or anything else that would have caused this situation. I'm like, Piper, did you eat anything? And she said, well, no, but I, I made a potion. I was like, do what? She's like, yeah, I made a potion. And I'm like, okay. And I was like, where is it? She's like, it's over here. And what turned me on to the whole, and maybe I need to ask a question, is our backyard has three full-grown oak trees in the back of it, and there's an acorn that's on the floor of her room. I'm like, okay, whatever. Maybe it just came in on her shoe. And so she goes and gets her trick-or-treating pumpkin bucket, right? Because, that's it. again, that's how much we're crushing it parenting. This is a month ago. We still got the trick-or-treating bucket in the, in the bedroom there, all right? And she picks it up, and she's like, here's my potion. And it's a collection of about a half an inch of water and maybe eight or ten acorns that she's chewed up, spit back into the pumpkin, swished around a little bit, and then drank it, okay? I'm like, yeah, your stomach hurts. So my level of parenting expertise that day was the next three hours was spent Googling, will acorns kill my child? Will consuming acorns kill my child? Because you just never think that's going to happen. Answer to the question for those of you who might have that experience, and I pray it's none of you, is no, you have to eat like thousands of them before it becomes a risk, although it will in fact give you a stomach ache and 
might in fact cause diarrhea. And so we got all that cleaned up, but I, I wanted to share that with you just as kind of a funny way, again, to demonstrate that we don't know just because we get to stand up here and teach or because we have pastor whatever slashed on our title doesn't mean we're experts on everything. And this morning's message, if I can be honest with you, it's maybe a little bit toe-stepping. And I tell you that on the front end because who it's really, whose toes it's really stepping on are mine. And I, I, I want to be completely honest with you when I say that this morning's message, even as I'm the one that's delivering it, is difficult for me to believe. In my life and where I sit right now, and I, and I want to explain, and maybe it'll make more sense this way, I'm, I'm unbelievably blessed. For the past 10 years of my life, God has done some incredible things. I graduated from the place that I wanted to go to school for forever. Um, convinced my wife, Misty, to marry me. I don't know how, poor judgment on her part, but we're here and nobody tell her any different. We have two unbelievably beautifully beautiful children. One of them is the fat man. Maybe you guys will get to see him soon. I hope he doesn't watch this too. Now I'm in trouble with both kids. But sprinkled in that 10-year period, the year that I graduated in May of 2012 from Clemson, September of that year, just a few months later, on the way home from home group, my car would leave the road. Um, and I would be in a car accident that resulted in a traumatic brain injury. I didn't believe that I would fully recover. The doctors didn't believe that I would fully recover. My family didn't believe that I would fully recover. And I'd be in the hospital for about three and a half months. I would make a full recovery. My family would be pulled together. We were close and we were tight through it. And, but there were still, God, what are, you, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to teach me? And I, and, I, and I wrestled a ton of lessons out of it, but I don't know that I ever figured out the lesson. And that was September the 4th, 2012. September the 6th of 2018, my, my brother took his own life. And I wrestled those questions again. Saw family come together, wanted it to be enough, and it wasn't. And then just over a month ago here on a Monday with Jordan, who I was talking about, who preached last week in our office, we were, we were hanging out and having a conversation and just talking through some stuff, mostly joking and messing around. That's what we do up here during the week. If you're curious what Jordan and Rick are doing, it's messing around. Um, when they're talking and out of nowhere, nine and a half years after the section, after the accident, I had what they call a grand mal seizure that lasted for about 10 or 15 minutes. Paramedics came, put me in the, took me to the hospital, got released from the hospital, and over the next 12 to 24 hours, they began to discuss with me the things that I wouldn't, that I'm not able to do. First, couldn't drive. I can't drive for the next six months until right around Halloween. Um, can't be alone with my children. I can't hold my son standing up. And a host of other things. I can't go swimming with my little girl who's learning how to swim without people in the back, not only to help babysit her, but to babysit dad. And it's been an unbelievably humbling and to be completely honest, humiliating, infuriating, and frustrating month and a half. 
And so I want to unpack a passage of Scripture that God put on my heart, but again from the premise, because I don't want any of this to come across as arrogant. And I don't want, if, if listen, if your toes are stepped on, know that, I'm, that they're stepping on mine too, because I don't have any of this figured out. I don't know what to do with any of this, and I'm trying to wrestle it down, and I'm begging God to just speak and believing that he will. And so I hope this morning that we can struggle together, that we can wrestle together, that you'll help me grieve, that you'll help me process. And if, if nothing else, just promise me this. If you hate everything that happens for the next 30 minutes, come back next week. Hopefully, they'll be in a better mood, okay? And we'll all, we'll all get along good. But what I also want to do this morning, in addition to trying to help me unpack some of the stuff that I'm walking through in my own personal life, is another passion of mine since the very beginning of ministry. And I've struggled with these passages of Scripture that I call coffee cup verses. And what I mean by that is this tendency that we have, especially as American, American evangelicals, to take popular passages of Scripture that show up time and time again. Think John 3, 16. Think passages like that. And we stick them anywhere we can stick them. Bumper stickers, posters in Sunday school classes, coffee mugs, journal books, whatever we can do. And we stick them there. And there's nothing wrong with that. Listen, get God's word out there. If you want to walk outside screaming it, I don't recommend it. I don't think anybody's, people are probably going to question you more than they listen to you. But if you want to, go ahead, go do that. If that's what God's calling you to do. I love getting God's word out there. But the problem seems to be with a lot of these passages of scripture, they become very easy to simply glaze over them. To read them to get them in your head, to maybe even have them memorized or at least on the surface level. Like I have a feeling that the passage of scripture that we're gonna spend all of this morning unpacking, all of us who have spent any length of time at church are at least going to have some familiarity with it, have at least heard it, have at least maybe heard a pastor preach on it one time or heard it used in a message one time, but there's a tremendous danger that we glaze over it. So if you get there in Philippians chapter one, verse 21, Paul writes these words. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Just by a show of hands, I didn't do this at the Nicholas service. How many of you have heard or at least experienced or seen that verse somewhere, heard it before? This is the first time. Okay, cool. A lot of us, the huge majority of us have at least experimented with that. And so here's the thing. As we've heard that verse, how many of us have stopped to think about the tremendous weight that exists in what Paul says there? Think about what he writes. For me to live is Christ. I don't want to live if it's not Jesus. But then he doubles down on that. That if I can't be living, if you are to end my life, you don't end anything because in dying, I gain. I mean, the loftiness of that statement. And if we don't understand it and unpack it, the religious arrogance of that statement. That I don't need anything if it's not Jesus. And if I die, I get Jesus and I have everything that I need. And here's where my honest frustration boils out. And the question that I want to help unpack as you help me unpack it this morning. And we're going to spend all of our morning asking this question. How can I believe this? How can I believe this? Because again, it's coffee cup verse. We know that it's in there. We've seen it. We've heard it. We've been around it. But how many of us would make that declaration to that level that Paul does with our lives? That give me Jesus or give me death. And if you give me death, I win anyway. That I will walk away from everything else. 
And so what I wanna do is break down this verse almost word by word to figure out how Paul gets here and hopefully how I can get myself here and maybe how we can align our hearts as a church with this verse. The first couple of words there is for to me, the first three words, for to me. So it's important that we understand, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible and your hand didn't go up, who's writing this? The author of this passage is a guy by the name of Paul. When we're introduced to him in the Bible, his name is Saul, but he converts uh, as he's gonna do a great deal of church planting uh, in the non-Jewish world, and it's just an easier name to communicate in that culture. So he's going to go by Paul for much of the New Testament. If you haven't heard of him, here's what Paul does. He writes about two-thirds of what we call the New Testament. So Matthew to Revelation, two-thirds of that is written by this guy named Paul. Most of those books are letters to churches or letters to pastors who are, who are pastoring churches in the first century in the Roman society that Paul helped plant. So I would contend and feel pretty comfortable that I don't think there's a church planter or a pastor who's gonna argue this. Paul is arguably the greatest church planter and one of the greatest disciple makers and greatest pastor mentors in the history of the Christian faith. And he gives the entire back half of his life to doing those things. But if you don't know the full story, that's not where we meet Paul, where we meet Saul. We meet Saul early in the book of Acts. Luke writes the book of Acts as an account of what's happening in the Christian faith. And where we meet Saul is at the end of this passage of scripture where a guy named Stephen stands up and preaches a message. And Stephen connects all of the Old Testament to who Jesus is. And at the end of that message, this is the pastoral nightmare here, everyone in the crowd is literally so angry, they rush the stage, take him outside and stone Stephen. And at the end of that stoning, we're introduced to Saul, who is there as a religious leader who is overseeing, in charge of overseeing this execution of Stephen. And we know that because the the people who do the stoning lay their cloaks at Saul's feet. We fast forward a few verses and Saul is on the way to a town called Damascus. And on the way there, okay, he's not reading how to make a better life. He's not reading how to find Jesus for dummies. He's not reading Christianities for dummies. He's carrying with him papers to Damascus to find people who are following Jesus. The Bible actually says that he is on the way to find men, women, and children who are following Jesus and have them arrested so that they can be executed for their faith. And on that road, Jesus literally shows up and asks the question, why are you persecuting me? And there's this beautiful interaction where Saul gives his life to the Lord and becomes Paul. And so to say that Paul has a past is an understatement. But it's also a unifying trait between Paul and each one of us. And so what I wanna do this morning as we get started is as we answer this question, how can I believe us, is look at two key things about our our past. The first is this, there is power in my past. You see, what Paul understands, what I hope we get to a spot that we understand this morning is that my, our past, my past provides perspective. There's power in my past and my past provides perspective. We jump back to Paul. Paul is uh, the letter that we're, or the verse that we're looking at comes out of the book of Philippians. Philippians is a, church, is a letter written to the church at Philippi after Paul's conversion. But in addition to the killing Christians aspect of Paul's life, you need to understand the socioeconomic aspects of where he was. 
You see, before Paul's conversion, before that moment on the road to Damascus, Paul was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee in the Jewish church, which would have meant for him it would have been very different than what we think of church or church leaders now. He would have had unbelievable political power. He would have had unbelievable access to a great deal of wealth. He would have been unbelievably connected. He would have been unbelievably influential. He would have been everything that they would have defined as successful, but not just them. He would have been everything that even today's society in America would define as successful, powerful, wealthy, intelligent. All of those things are who he is. He is a, he is a picture of success. But I love if you flip over one page, the only other verse we'll read this morning As we get that perspective, as we understand who Paul is, here's what he writes on another coffee cup verse in Philippians chapter three. Indeed, I, talking about Paul, this is Paul writing this, count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul looks at a life, looks backward at a life. I want you to understand what's happening here. It's really easy to go, well, you know, he's a church planner, he's traveling, he's poor, but that's not always who he was. That Paul pins this verse looking backwards at a life that was wealthy, that was successful, that was influential, that was powerful, and says, I count all of that as rubbish, which in the Greek word means what Piper did in her bed that I had to clean up. That he says all of that is worthless, it's meaningless if I don't have Jesus. If it doesn't get me more of Jesus, I don't want it. You want to know why there is, uh, why your past is so important? It's because it's the only thing that people can't rightly disagree with you on or take from you. I can't tell you what happened in your past or didn't happen in your past. I also can't tell you how you feel about your past or what happened in your past. Here's what I know about my past. When I look back at my past before I knew Jesus, I was angry, I was hopeless, I was drifting, and I was purposeless. But I know who I am now. And I have been through some unbelievable suffering, and I continue to walk through unbelievable suffering, and again, I don't have it figured out, but I know that God is there. And even in these moments, he's provided relationships, he's provided people, he's provided blessings that are helping me navigate it. And what they're really doing is helping me provide perspective, helping me be provided with perspective to what I am struggling with. The second thing that your past does that I want to unpack is that your past provides examples. This is an interesting one for Paul because I'm talking about examples here of where God has shown up and done things in your life. And so sure, it's easy, maybe if you haven't read through a lot of the Bible or don't have the entire historical context of what's happened to Paul in his life to go, yeah, well, of course, you know, Paul's planted all of these churches. He's literally inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the Bible. All of these things are going, of course, it's easy for him to look back and go, God, you've been faithful. The theme of the book of Philippians is encouragement. He writes to the church at Philippi to encourage the members of Philippi in their faith, in their journey, as they're planting, as they're sharing the good news of the gospel. He writes this message of encouragement while chained to a guard in Rome, in prison. 
And then it's going to get better because most uh, historical scholars believe that three to five years after Paul writes the book to the church at Philippi, he's going to be martyred for his faith. And so in the middle of being imprisoned, Paul writes a letter of encouragement. But if you understand Paul's life, you understand this isn't the first time he's been here. In fact, if you look through it, Paul goes to prison a lot. The frequent flyer, all right? Paul is beaten a number of times simply for sharing his faith, not for doing anything bad. Paul is shipwrecked and left for dead. And in each one of those circumstances, God has shown up. Maybe I would argue this way, probably not in the way that Paul and his flesh would have liked for God to. But God has shown up and God has done what? Used Paul's suffering for God's glory and Paul's joy. And so Paul looks back at his life before he pins that famous word, verse that we're looking at today and says, I see example after example after example, not necessarily of prosperity, but of faithfulness. There's absolutely prosperity in there. He has relationships that have succeeded. He has brothers and sisters in Christ who he's been able to pour into. But more often, if you read through the New Testament, Paul's life is a train wreck. Interrupted by, I'm praying for you. I love you. Keep doing what you're doing. Maybe send me some money so I can get out of jail if you get time for it. His past, the power, there's, there's power in his past because it provides examples and it provides perspective. But I want to be careful for each of us because they're not just power in our past. The second piece of our past is there's danger in it. There is danger in my past. I think there's two lies, two lies that we believe, especially here in evangelical Christian America, that we fall victim to. And I don't mean we fall victim to them once. I mean we fall victim to these things time and time again in this kind of circular pattern. And the two lies that I think we buy into, the first one is I'm good enough. It's this notion that I don't need Jesus. And it plays out in two ways. It plays out in the secular world this way. I have enough intelligence. I have enough college degrees. I have enough money. I have enough security. I have enough relationships. I have enough admiration. I have enough whatever you want to fill in the blank with that we spend our life pursuing that I don't really need Jesus sprinkled on that. In fact, I'm not going to come to Jesus with that because I know from listening to people talk to Jesus that if I do, he might take this away. And so the secular culture goes, I don't need it. My political standpoint, my reasoning, my IQ level, what I believe, what I know is enough, and I don't need anything to add to it. I'm good. I'm good enough. But for those of us who are believers in here, we're not going to get off and get away from this danger either because this one sadly plays out maybe more commonly in the religious world than it does in the worldly world that we buy into this lie that I am good enough. And here's how it plays out in the church world is we become experts in how everyone else should fix their sin. I become an expert in what you're struggling in. Right, and again, and, it, and it's, we laugh and we chuckle, and you, but you turn on the news and you read Facebook feeds and you look at political stuff and you do all of these things and the immediate thing that even believers 
jump to on social media is not, hey, how can we love, care, and express who Jesus is to people who are hurting and desperate? It's how can I teach you what you're doing is wrong and get you to stop doing it? Right, like, and then the world doesn't come to Jesus. They're like, no, I'm good enough. And oftentimes the reason that they don't come is because we've slammed the door in people's faces because we've convinced them they're not. Well, listen, man, you, you have your Jesus. It seems like he's made you angry. And I'm, I'm good enough. But the second lie that we believe, interestingly enough, that leads to danger in our past is that I'm not good enough. Now, I want to be careful here because this can go, and I want to make sure that everybody pays attention to this. This is a lie that is actually true, right? And here's what I mean by this. The Bible is very, very, very clear that none of us on our own accord are good enough to earn what God has done for us. In fact, the Bible is going to take it even farther and say that at our best, at our most righteous moment, the Bible says our righteousness the best we ever get it, the deepest home run you ever hit still falls woefully short. In fact, it's described as filthy rags before God. And so this is absolutely true. I am not good enough, but understanding you're not good enough is going to do one of two things to you. It's gonna do what I'm afraid it does to many of us, and that's this. It is going to convince us and cause us to run away from God. It is going to convince us and cause us to believe that we are not good enough to approach him. And so our Christianity is gonna be this surface level thing that we kind of do, but I don't ever want anybody to know me and I don't ever want anybody to know what I struggle with and I don't ever want anyone to battle what I do because if I do, then they're gonna judge me and God's gonna judge me and I'm not gonna be good enough and I can't ever do it. Here's the incredible good news of Jesus that I need you to understand this morning if you're not a believer. You're not good enough. It's good news, hang on. Jesus knew you weren't good enough. Jesus died so that he could make you good enough by giving you his perfection in exchange for something very simple, your trust. That he's enough. And so for us as believers, what changes our life is not this white-knuckled effort to be a better person, to do better, to try harder, to be more religious. It's simply going, I'm going to fail, and when I fail, I'm going to run back to Jesus' grace. And when I experience Jesus' grace, it's going to inspire me to go out there and live for the stuff of Jesus. And then when I go out there and try to do that, I'm going to fail again, and it's going to drive me back to Jesus. And Jesus' grace is going to fuel my effort, and my effort is going to fuel my need for Jesus' grace. And Jesus' grace is all always going to be sufficient for those of us who would call on his name, regardless of what you do. Because my hope and my prayer is that nobody in this room has ever killed people for following Jesus. Paul did. If you have, we need to talk. You might need to turn yourself in and we can do some reconciliation, maybe set you up with an attorney. We'll try to help you do what we can do. But that's not our past. It is Paul's. And he says, Jesus is enough. I'm not good enough. And because I'm not good enough, I continually fall back on who Jesus is. And the next part of the verse that we need to unpack says, for to me, to live is Christ. And this is where we're really continuing. Again, I wanna encourage you to go watch what Jordan preached last week because here's the truth that regardless of if you believe in Jesus, I think you will have to accept as true. All of us are pursuing something. We all pursue something. I could add two extra words and you can jot them down if you want to. I would take it even farther and say we all pursue something as ultimate. 
For some of us, it's this picture of a family. For some of us, it's a 401k. For some of us, it's a bank account status. For some of us, it's just a personal status. For some of us, it's acceptance. For some of us, it's power. For some of us, it's the American dream. For some of us, it's notoriety. And we could go on until Thursday just naming stuff that people have given their lives to pursue. But the interesting thing is the Bible is going to teach that from the Genesis chapter three to where we sit right now, the interesting thing humanity does is pursue the wrong things over and over and over and over and over again. And then what's really cool as you study and understand the Bible is they're continuously the same things. In first century Jewish culture and now, we're chasing the same things and it didn't work then and we're expecting it to work now. And I wanna ask the question, why? Why do we chase these things as ultimate? And I think there's three reasons that I want to unpack this morning just really quickly. The first is that right now, and this is another deep passion of mine that got me into ministry, especially in the American evangelical church, this generation of believers is perhaps the most biblically illiterate group of believers that's ever existed. And again, I don't want to step on your toes and I'm not telling you you can't read. I don't know if you can read or not read. But what I do know is that I get quoted an unbelievable amount of Martin Luther King and Benjamin Franklin as if it was the Bible. You know, I'm sharing like, hey, you know, I'm just struggling. I love to spend time in my yard and keep it cleaned up. And, you know, my wife's like, hey, you need to come inside and play with your kids, but I'd rather be out here doing this and it's kind of quiet. And then people are like, well, you know, Rick, you should tell her cleanliness is next to godliness. Jesus said that. I'm like, no, Ben Franklin said that. Yeah, but we have a dream. That was Martin Luther King also not in the Bible, all right? And so we don't pursue the things of Scripture because we don't know the things of Scripture. And listen, there's no excuse, right? Like I understand it's hard to read. It was written thousands of years ago, but I got a master's degree from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary using Amazon in my couch, And we would love to talk to you. Grab one of us on staff here. We have resources posted in our home groups page on the website that will tell you, here's some resources for how you can read the Bible. Here's a study Bible that will help you break it down. We have home groups that primarily one of the reasons that they exist is so that all of us can interact with God's word and learn how to apply it to our lives. And we'd love to connect you with that, but we don't go that way. The second reason that I think we fall into this trap is because we've convinced ourselves we're too busy. I have too much on my schedule. But the interesting thing about that argument is as I have conversations with people, here's the reality of your schedule. Nothing is on there that you didn't say yes to. Nothing is on there that you didn't put on there. And so you are as busy or not busy as you allow yourself to be. And again, you can say, well, I have to do this for work. I have to do this for work. I have to do this for family. I have to do this for whatever. At what expense? What are you pursuing as ultimate? And then the last one, and I think this is the most dangerous, and I really genuinely believe that this is where the devil does his best work right now. The last reason we don't believe this stuff is because we are content to sit. You want to know what I think one of the greatest tools in the devil's hand is? Netflix. Right, because we're so busy, we're so busy, we're so busy, but you've watched that season. I've sat and I've vegged and I've done those things. And listen, there's nothing wrong with anything I said. Go be successful, go make money, go raise a family, go do all of those things. But when those things rob you of Jesus, there's an issue. Good things have become God things and they can't carry that weight. 
And so for many of us, we never fight the battle because we're never willing to even recognize that there's a battle going on. And so we sit and we go, listen, I know that I'm supposed to be the one that teaches my wife and my children and I'm supposed to be the spiritual leader of my family, but I've had a long day at work and I just need her to make dinner and then one of the kids can say some little fake blessing and then we'll try to help get both of them tucked in and just make sure that we get to the next day. Or I've had a long day and I need my husband to just go through the grocery store and just understand that I'm not gonna do it and I need to sit in the bathtub and I need to just relax and I need to do that. And relaxation and restoration are great things. I'm not telling you to rob yourself of those things. What I am telling you is if you're never in a battle to make Jesus known in your life and to preach Jesus with your life, but you have an hour and a half for Netflix every night, something's gotten out of whack. We're chasing the wrong things. And then how he concludes the verse. And maybe the the heaviest passage and the most difficult one for me to process in what I've been walking through in life over the past month. The last four words. To die is gain. I want to be very careful. I don't believe that Paul is somehow suicidal or I'm not going to ask anybody at the end of this service to come down here and drink this Kool-Aid out of a cooler that I filled up for us that I'm telling you about right now that's not going to happen so don't get nervous and leave yet what I do think Paul is doing right here is he's saying if I live I continually get to experience more of Jesus and when I die I will get to know him fully so how can I lose I don't think there's ever been a worse person in the history of the world to have be your enemy than Paul because what are you going to do to him? Beat me. Paul literally converts one of the guards that he's chained to to Christianity because he's singing and writing encouraging letters. What are you going to do to him? Put me in prison. I'll write letters of encouragement to the church. It'll give me time to slow down so I can do that. Kill me. To die is gain. See, what Paul has begun to understand, what I can't seem to wrestle all the way down, but I'll try to as we close this morning, is that he can't lose. And what Paul has wrestled with, and there's two concepts that I want to conclude with, and what he's ironed out in his life is that Paul has both an accurate horizontal and vertical theology of God. And for much of my life, much of my walk with Jesus, the horizontal theology was easy. And here's what the horizontal theology is. It's what God does. Here's that God saves me. God blesses me, God protects me, I see it in creation, I see his beauty, I see his creativity, I see all of these things and I understand, I see all of these things that God does. But the vertical theology is simply knowing God for who God is. I'll put it to you this way, and some of you are gonna feel a certain way about this, but it is what it is. When I was nine, he was a superhero and so I love him. I am a huge fan of Tiger Woods. Always have been, always will be. I know he's made some morally questionable decisions, but we all have, and he needs forgiveness and grace, and I'm gonna show it to him, okay? And this year, uh, I was blessed to be able to go over to the Masters and watch Tiger Woods hit some shots. Now, watching Tiger Woods on the driving range and watching Tiger Woods play golf, that's my horizontal relationship with Tiger Woods. I see what he does. I see how he swings. I see how he hits the ball. I see how he puts. I know all of these things are going on. My vertical relationship with Tiger Woods is what I know about Tiger Woods. And I'm not gonna share that because I will, I will own up to the fact that it is far too much information for one grown man to know about another grown man that I'm never gonna meet, okay? But I know a lot of information about Tiger Woods. 
That's the vertical relationship. And for many of us, we get stuck in one of those or the other. And so for those of us who are stuck in the vertical, everything becomes about discipleship. Let me just teach you who God is. Let me just teach you who he is. But what does that call me to do? And then for many of the others of us, we're so abstract and we go, well, I just want to get the blessings. I just want to get salvation. I want to do all of those. But what Paul says here and gives him the ability to write these as he looks back at his past and forward towards his future, which he knows is going to likely end in martyrdom, is that Paul says, I have the freedom to believe that God is good because I've seen God be good. But then in the moments when I don't see God being good, I understand my circumstances don't determine God's goodness. I've seen God be gracious, but when I suffer and immediately want to go, God, what are you punishing for me for? I understand that God's grace isn't dependent on my performance, it's dependent on his graciousness. And so the freedom that Paul has to write this passage and that I so long for to just be able to wrap my head and my flesh fully around and to believe and to grasp and I'm praying and I've asked friends, I've shared this with my home group, I've done all of these things and I've asked them, pull alongside me, help me, I'm struggling, I'm battling is right now, the only thing that I have is the vertical. But I need reminders of where God's been in the past. And here's the toe-stepping part. In the next, hopefully, 10 to 15 seconds, hopefully all of us are going to draw a breath of oxygen in. And exactly zero of us are going to deserve it. So if you don't understand God's gifts and God's grace, open your eyes, shift your perspective. If you need help doing that, plug in with somebody else who can help you get your head above water. Wrestle this stuff to the end. Because I want to be very clear. This isn't a battle you're going to win and then it's going to be done. It's going to be a battle that you're going to fight from now until you get to the casket. But here's the great news of Christianity. When your faith is in Jesus, we all have an appointment with the casket and that casket's already been defeated. And so I'm not asking you to spend the rest of your life battling for white-knuckled religious performance. I'm asking you to battle for joy that doesn't shake in circumstances. Because that joy pushes you to live for God's glory and that joy the world takes note of. Will you pray with me? Jesus, this morning, thank you. God, thank you that myself, that, that everybody in this room at some level has missed your goodness and your grace. We've skimmed right over it. We've passed right over it like we do these verses that have an unbelievable story to tell. And your response has not been, I'm done. I'm going to wipe it away. I'm going to start a new creation. I'll get a new people. It's been grace. From Genesis chapter 3 to the gospel stories of Jesus and the reality of his life, death, burial, and resurrection to the circumstances that I find myself in, your response to all of my suffering, to all of my struggles, and to all of my pursuing the wrong things has been abundant grace. So Jesus, this morning, I'm sorry. God, that even right now, I, I struggle. I doubt. I want it to be more clear, and it's not.
But Jesus, this morning in your power and your grace, I thank you that I can read about, I can see in my past, and I can look forward to knowing that you are good, that you are gracious, and that your goodness and grace is enough. God, give me the strength to abandon everything, to count everything as rubbish if it's not you. I love you, Jesus. I pray for those in this room who need to make that declaration this morning. Will you give them the strength to do it as well? It's in your name we pray.